In the old days, you would download your configs each night with some tool and then get a report with diffs. And then you'd stare at the diffs and go, hmm, yeah, that, that seems right. I, I remember there was a change control that was scheduled to happen. I even think the new config has something to do with the change and the network's still up. I'm sure it's fine. Good job, everyone. And then you'd kind of get on with your inbox, move on with your day. And that approach, that sort of works as long as there's a limited number of device types and a limited number of changes on your network and you care enough to pay attention. Of course, now you're trying to automate and let the machines handle as much as possible. And you really, really haven't been checking those diffs and don't have much idea of where the configs are at at this point anyway. But you want to bring everything back into compliance. In fact, you need to bring it all back into compliance. It's kind of become the wild, wild west out there. And that's just the legacy gear. We haven't even mentioned all the cloudy VNFs with API hooks you keep having to stand up and manage. Yeah. Our sponsor today, Itential, and we are going to have a discussion about network compliance. The big idea is to rethink how you do compliance so that the process is automation-friendly and accommodates all the network device types you have to manage. Our guest today is Chris Wade. He's been on heavy networking before, and Chris is the CTO at Itential. Chris, welcome back to the show. And uh, I, I use the word compliance a bunch in that intro, Chris. And so I think before we have much more of this conversation, I need to get from your perspective what you believe compliance is. A lot of folks might have heard compliance and be thinking regulatory stuff. So let's clarify what we mean by compliance. Perfect. So you started by talking about taking backups and, and looking at diffs. And historically, it's been a very monolithic kind of exercise. We look at kind of the entire config of a device as a thing. Um, when we think about compliance and we'll talk about validation, we're really talking about how do I take everything that I understand around my, my network and try to codify it? So how do I put my best practices? How do I put my standards? How do I make sure that my devices are up on the latest patch? Um, so ultimately, how, how do I take as much as I know about my network um, and uh, apply that through some software? Okay. And so compliance is the whole, what this device is supposed to look like and what the network is supposed to look like broadly. And then, right, using software to make that happen. Okay, so, uh, so so we get a sense of this. We're not just talking about regulatory stuff. It's like we're not talking about making devices HIPAA compliant exactly. We're talking about bringing all these devices into uh, uh, compliance with what our standards are going to be. All right, well, so let, so break this part out for me then. A, a lot of network engineers will think about dealing with network devices, this router, this switch, this firewall, and making it look like a thing. So how do we deal with compliance from that perspective versus dealing with the network holistically? Do I have a compliant quote unquote network or a compliant device? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've looked at these devices as, as a lot of people talk about it as snowflakes, right? So we have these very specific network architectures. I hear you talking about on the podcast, how do we drive standardization into, into the network? And ultimately we're thinking about how do I drive this in device groups? How do I drive standardization across my network uh, with the ultimate goal that I want to be able to make changes in a more efficient way, right? We, we, you know, we'll get into it a little bit, but we're talking about compliance as kind of this interim step um, to allow us to start to apply automation ultimately to the network. But to answer your question, we really want to look at these devices as groupings. So maybe I have a top of rack switch, maybe I have a cloth fabric, maybe I have my my WANs or my SD WAN. How do I apply changes most broadly? in a standardized way. Yeah, when we talk about standardization to me, this this what you just said there is huge. I have been <laughs> you know Greg has his his soapboxes. Well, this is one of mine. Uh, where everything <laughs> on your network needs to be same same. You know, that is you must have 
a set of network devices that look the same from one device to another because that facilitates automation. In other words, if you're trying to deal with all these little corner cases because of all these exceptions and oddball things you've done from one device to another over time, automating that is becomes fragile. It's difficult to do that. There's more risk involved. The standardization, getting to that compliance state, uh, to me, is a facilitator for automation. Exactly. So ultimately, it's, it's some level of confidence and trust um, is how we talk about it. Um, if I'm going to automate the network, if I'm going to automate my cloud, if I'm going to ultimately automate applications across kind of my diverse infrastructure, um, we're really about trying to build trust and automation. I mean, trust and confidence within, within how the network's configured. And if I think about it, most automation strategies kind of start with a me approach. So I'm going to automate my stuff because I know how that part of the network applies. When I start thinking about trying to do automation more broadly across the network, or I try to do it within my team, within my group, across, across my company, um, we have to start driving that standardization so that not every single person has uh, the understanding of the best practices and the standards across kind of the whole diverse set of network elements and device groups we're talking about. I also think, Ethan, that compliance is a very broad brush. It's a four-inch, you know, it's the four-inch paintbrush on the uh, on the on the two foot by two foot artwork that you might be drawing, because for some people, compliance is setting up SNMP configs. For other people, compliance can be uh, making sure that a, a device has uh, comments in the configuration and that the two-phase commit is completed, like there's no hanging commit. So some devices have this idea of a two-phase commit. And what you want from configuration compliance is to make sure every device has the, the there's no like gap between the stored config and the running config or the committed config, if you know what I'm saying. So compliance is, is a fairly broad church, isn't it? So part of this, Greg... It- yeah, we are talking about a broad set of things, but it does all come under one set of practices and how you view yeah. uh, network devices. So, so Chris, like so this actually goes back to you. In back in the day, if I was managing configurations by hand, I would build out uh, a standard for like a, SNMP just came up. I think you, you mentioned that, Greg. This is what our mm-hmm. SNMP config looks like for this device. This is the standard. You shall comply with this, and we kind of managed it by hand. Uh, is that still the mode we're in, Chris, where it's like, here's a block of code that does this thing on this device, and that's the thing we're worried about being compliant? Or we think about it like a like a, a larger config, the whole config for a device? Or do we even think about config? Yeah, I think in most organizations we work with, we kind of see um, this, this uh, traditional NCCM or compliance type of mentality within one tool, and we see kind of automation on a, on a separate track. And typically what happens is somebody says, okay, we're doing the SNP standard. Somebody goes and makes a change on some network element. And there's some report written that offline that says, okay, we found something that's not like the others. Um, download a spreadsheet, email it out to the people that might be responsible for it. Um, ask them to change it. Um, you know, a week later, run the report again. If I find it uh, broken again, then maybe, maybe I have to escalate back, back to the organization. And, and I think, we can all relate to that's how things have been done um, from trying to manage those those golden configs, if you will. It's clunky, but at least you can get your head around it, right? It's fairly straightforward, despite how clunky it is. Exactly. And and where we're at today um, is, is we have this concept of validation where you can actually make that query before you make the change to the network. So whether you're using your tool uh, of choice, if you say, I want to make this set of changes on this device... Um, you know, the software is to the point now where you can ask it ahead of time. If I put this 
change on this device? Is it going to put it out of compliance? So we're really, um, you know, from a process perspective, I still see a lot of people being very reactionary, but but all this, all the technology is in place to be completely proactive with this. Um, so the need potentially for running that historical report and sending out the email with the attached spreadsheet goes away to the point where we can prevent mm. we can prevent those 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 best practices and standards from being violated before before it actually makes its way into the network. So we're still thinking in terms of of config though, as opposed to say uh, policy. I guess I'm trying to I'm wondering if we can make this a little bit generic. I want to write a policy that says here's some SNMP stuff and I don't care about the config specifics. Uh, so does my automation tooling help me write policy or am I still dealing with blocks of code, if you will? So you get to kind of the core of, of how iTential thinks about managing the state of the network in the sense that when you look at historical CLI-based devices, you have this monolithic config, right? You have 1500 lines of, of, of iOS config. And where we're going to is, is there's part of the config that should almost never change. Your, your, your example of SNMP, our destination for SNMP probably doesn't change very often. Right. Um, my NTP servers probably don't change very often. So we consider that kind of day zero, day one type of part of the config very, very static. Um, that, is, that is the part that we want to make sure changes the very least. And then we have other parts of the config, um, which would be really related to connectivity, uh, to policy. We actually think that should change all the time. The, the, the thought that changing the network less frequently is somehow safer um, is, is, is not necessarily reality these days. So the question is, instead Yay! of looking- That's right. Because if you're not practicing, <laughs> it doesn't work, right? It's, it's like if you're a football player, you practice five days a week to play the game on Sunday, right? Or whatever the, whatever the sports ball thing is. Um, but if you're not touching the network, five days a week, and then all of a sudden you do, you've not practiced what you're doing. That is a that is something that I've been preaching for a long, long time. Nobody believes me, though. I believe you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, treating it monolithically, I think, is, is, is kind of core to the issue here. And when, um, like I said, Ethan, when you separate the compliance logic into a separate system from the automation logic, which is attempting to make a change in a very standardized way into two different systems, you get this, this natural conflict. But if we can look at the config and break it down and say, this part needs to be managed in, in a very uh, standardized best practice way. It needs to go through some sort of, of review before we change it. But you know what? If you're doing connectivity-based things, um, you know, the app, we, can, we can start to open that up and we'll talk about it later. We can start opening that up to the application team so they can start self-serving in the network, knowing full well that you've segmented the part of the config so they can't touch the parts that will have an adverse effect or break the, the best practices and standards that the business has put on the network. All right. So we are managing holistically in sections uh, as well. <laughs> so there's, there's a bit of that. Um, right. so, so getting right into it, Chris, you said that this is kind of a differentiator for iTential. How far from the code am I, am I? Because I know you guys do multi-vendor, so there's an implication there that maybe I don't have to think about config stanzas at all, or is that inaccurate? So I think you're getting at kind of the concept of abstraction mm. on top of the, the, the native config. Um, our, our, our strategy is really to allow customers to take full advantage of each vendor's implementation. In certain cases, uh, you guys have talked about this, this in the show, whether it's open config, 
or whether you have Ansible roles. Um, there's these concepts of abstracting the underleaf. Um, what we're seeing maybe less on the um, CLI device side and more maybe on the cloud services side that we'll talk about later, we have vendors that are trying to differentiate themselves every day mm. um, to, to the point where some of those abstractions actually you lose the fidelity of the configuration that makes them unique or makes the reason why the business or the technology leadership chose to go with a certain SUN platform, with a certain cloud platform, with a certain data center um, strategy. So, so our, our goal is to uh, provide that, that high fidelity um, granular interaction with the underlying technology. We love abstractions when it's appropriate. But in most of these cases, we do think it's most appropriate to work with the vendor-specific implementation. And we can kind of talk about, as we get into some of the, 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 the non-CLI type of network elements, how it's becoming so much easier in kind of the modern networking stack than it has traditionally in a CLI stack, which was written for humans um, and less so for machines. <laughs> and that is an interesting part of it, is that the, the nature of compliance is changing because as we move to API driven community, like today still the CLI is kind of, in, in the broader market, CLI configuration or the text configuration is still the configuration of Mark. It's still the reference architecture. And to some extent, the APIs, but we're also seeing a transition away from the CLI to API. So there's just a collection of commands that exist inside the device itself. And does compliance embrace that in some way? Is that the transition that we're seeing the NCCM makers embrace? When we, when we think about it, uh, there's you know I just I just spoke about the fact that um, abstractions maybe are less useful on top of a sync you know multi vendor type of, of of situation, which I'm sure is uh, provocative to uh, maybe some of the listeners of what they've heard from others. Hmm. Um, but I would say um, you know when it comes to what is an ACL on a router versus what is a uh, security group on a VPC versus maybe what's a policy from a clap from a CASB type of scenario, you start to see very uh, similar nuances there. So the question really is, how do I come up with the validation, the network standards for the business and have a way to implement that standard uh, independent of, of some of the technology choices? You know, the, the, the bifurcation between our CLI stack um, and our API stack, you know, really requires us to implement things twice. And, and we think mm. that, you know, to have flexibility amongst those, we really need to think about how do I achieve my business outcome, which has been this compliance best practice uh, implementation across kind of my diverse networking infrastructure that I have today? Now, you mentioned earlier that there are some of these day zero things. There's fairly static portions of the configuration that do not change. And in fact, for a lot of folks, maybe their network devices don't change like much at all other than you know provisioning a new switch interface for some server that's going up in the data center or something like that. In the modern network, which you've alluded to, we have short life cycles for network devices, and we have changes that may, may need to be happening pretty regularly compared to what we used to have. How do I deal with configuration and compliance in that context, uh, rapid iteration of changes? So maybe there's, maybe there's two questions within there. First is like, how do I actually check, validate configuration across mm -hmm. an API? So I'll start with the, the, the part that makes it easier is that instead of it being a CLI-driven interface that was written for humans that doesn't, you know, I have to write a parsing engine against that historically, mm -hmm. now APIs come with what we call schema. So I can actually, without any effort, say, you know, is it, does it match the schema uh, of that implementation? And we have an entire ecosystem around JSON schema available to all the users um, for checking validation against that input. So 
going to an API, the, the compliance from a pure technology standpoint um, becomes easier. Now, the flip side you, of that is- Are yep. you talking about input validation, basically looking at the JSON schema, the fields and the key value pairs and saying, okay, these are the inputs you're trying to fit into this schema. This is going to work or this isn't going to work. Is that what you're talking about? Correct. Hmm. Okay. If we talk about why the schema input validation makes it a little bit easier from a technology standpoint, now, how do I actually look at all of the configs? Um, just as a, a side note, when we look at a VPC, it takes 13 API calls uh, to the AWS uh, API to get all the varying components of a VPC. So for folks that are used to saying, you know, show running config and I get, I get the blast of the 1500 lines we talked about now, I have to kind of poke and prod at different pieces. But as you were saying before, how do we break that monolith into those, those uh, stanzas? Now, you know, the provider of this network connectivity, in this case, AWS with VPCs, has kind of broken out into those logical components. So now if I want to put some uh, compliance against my security groups, I can make a specific API call, get the JSON payload back, and do that comparison, um, similar to, uh, to routes and other kind of uh, normal networking concepts. So the, again, going back to the uh, your, your framing here, we're talking about rather than just going out to a CLI designed for humans, hammering in uh, code and then hoping that it all works and it, it's fine. Instead, we're taking the raw inputs, looking at a JSON schema, saying these should work or these should not work. So you can validate what all of that input's going to be. So that, again, that allows me to sanitize my input. I know I've got, so what I've proven then is when I click go and I, I post that uh, data to the API, it's going to be accepted and it should work. Exactly. And now we're kind of talking ourselves into the the complexity that exists within within the network, right? So we're talking, we talked about CLI stuff. We started talking about some API stuff. When we start to talk about how we run compliance across a diverse set of things, and, and the reality is it's our belief that the network continues to get more complicated. We think about, you know, we're in the early days of adopting a lot of this new technology. And we think it's our responsibility to provide that compliance and validation engine, regardless of the technology. So whether it's a CLI stanza, whether it's your day zero config, whether it's the services that you're trying to deploy in rapid fashion, or whether you're trying to apply it across SD-WAN or cloud modern networking infrastructure, that's that's the goal here. And, and ultimately, if we can provide that level of comfort and trust within the validation of the network, then we can get on to all that great automation stuff that we we typically talk yeah, about. Yeah, because because this is the, this is the thing here about compliance is it doesn't it's not something that actually changes your life in an in a big ooh ah fireworks go up and the and the lights go on and and you know everybody goes ooh ah it's one of those things like oh I don't have to do that anymore it's not. It's a different sort of technology. It must be hard to sell in that sense in that um, it's not glamorous technology that, that, that's that got speeds and feeds and cables and power supplies and, you know, it's it's an, actually a technology that just does the dish. It's like a dishwasher. It just does what it does. And it's it when you've got one, you you realise why you should never have had, you should have always had one. But yeah, if I, if I could provide a metaphor, um, mm. you know, we talk about infrastructure as code uh, as a, as a, as a paradigm shift, um, you know, in, in, in network automation um, pretty consistently. But if we look at any sort of software development for, for a long time, I used to write my, my unit tests and I used to run them uh, against my code. And what happened is the complexity of the software got to the point where we had to start running pipelines and I had to regression test uh, a whole bunch of tests to make sure that I didn't break somebody else's stuff. 
as the network continues to get more complicated, I mean, how many, um, you know, uh, <laughs> tunnels and tunnels are we going to overlay on top of our Kubernetes clusters across our multi-cloud infrastructure? The, the all answer the shows is you, more. That's the yeah, answer. Exactly. <laughs> all, all the shows you guys do on that. It, it, it's some point, you know, as a network engineer, or somebody operates large scale networks. I know a lot about my network, but at some point we have to start to codify what we know about our network into the tool system. Um, cause it, it is, it is, it is very difficult to understand the ramifications of every change on top of all the other changes that our people are making. Um, and, and ultimately we need to be able to have a way to put that in the system so that I can get on with the changes I want to make. And I know that it's not going to violate any of those best practices, uh, that I've put in the system. I, okay. I've never had that problem at every single network I've ever parachuted into, um, <laughs> except that I have. <laughs> So then, which presents a problem in my mind. So I've got a network that isn't in any sort of a state of compliance. I'd have to go through and audit all these devices and kind of make them compliant. Should I be doing that before I bring the tooling on board? Or do I bring the tooling, the automation on board to help me get compliant? I think that's probably the, one of the most common questions um, we get in the sense that people's resistance to automation, and there's this concept that that automation will will somehow make things worse if it's not already in a good state. Um, I think almost every organization finds themselves where this pocket is the most recent upgraded. That is the most recent technology. That's in a, in, in a better shape than maybe other stuff. What I would say is it's not an all, all or nothing proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, it, at the end of the day, the best practices can be put in the system and you can every, you know, it's just like any developer, you write one more unit test and you know, that's never going to happen again. You write one more unit test, you know, that thing's never going to happen again. So whether it's your NTP servers, whether it's SNMP, whether it's interface description standards, whatever the type of, of things that you're focused on, adding those best practices and standards, you know, plugs the hole in the boat. Um, so water stops coming in so we can start pushing, pushing the water back out. So I really see this as a tool to increase the quality of the best practice. You can start from a very low watermark. And I think that, that you can slowly ratchet it up. It's not an all or, or nothing pop proposition. And that's the, and that's the thing that stuck out to me the most, Chris, it's not an all or nothing thing. So let's say 10 years ago when there really wasn't tooling like this, my process would have been having to deal with this manually. Exactly that, a little bit of time. Okay, guys, let's start with the easy stuff. We're going to do NTP. We're going to do SNMP. We're going to do, you know, the kind of a laundry list of those those static day zero things that don't change much. And it was pretty easy to get those wins. Build the build the standard and then push it out there. Okay, we're going to do this group tonight. We're going to do this group next week and, you know, and so on. Right. Take that philosophy of how it might have been done manually until finally all the devices were in compliance. Use the tooling to do that. You don't have to have the whole thing managed at once. You can just focus on a component at a time and bring it in, uh, bring that into compliance. And then over time, the whole thing comes into focus. And at the end of it, you've now got a tool that's going to keep it that way. If you had it, if you were doing it all manually, Things have been slipping that you just didn't notice because you don't have anything really keeping track of that, probably. You got it. And, and, and imagine a scenario where you let the technology um, augment your thinking in the sense that, let's say you you give us a 100 top-of-rack switches, we can tell you what's similar across all of them. Hmm. So so in, instead of you having to whiteboard, you know, you can imagine, like we used to, we get in a whiteboard in a room, we start writing what should be the golden config. Somebody in a lab somewhere has the perfect, quote unquote, the, the perfect, the perfect switch um, that we build all the other switches off of. <laughs> the reference, um, the reference, the reference, sorry, the reference, the reference. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, if we feed in 100 configs, we can say, you know, on, on 97 percent of your of your switches, you have this 
NTP config on these other ones, you have this other one. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe it's not. Uh, mm. But we can we can start letting the machine inform you, provide you provide you insights, so that you can start deciding what is part of your reference, what is part of your best practice, and how do I start to bring things in alignment. Uh, I was laughing when you gave that example of a hundred topper racks, which is we could tell you what's similar, and I'm like nothing. <laughs> really depends on how grim of a shop you walk into and just how bad things are. How many people came before you? Oh. I, think, I think there's an interesting question here that we've seen this evolution in the market recently where people are switching away from the old days of an ethernet port having, you know, maybe five, maybe 10 variables set on the physical port configuration, you know, LLDP, some spanning tree, maybe speed duplex, things like that. And yet, in a modern configuration, we've got hundreds or thousands of virtual ports, and each one of those virtual ports may have 100, 200 lines each to hold the EVPN. Mm. Um, that, just in case you haven't embraced or felt the magic of, of handling that configuration complexity, that is what we're talking about here is there is a transition going on here where the market is changing the way it thinks about these things. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, and, and, and the question really is, is how, how can we make that available to the people who, who's provisioning all those services, Greg? Like ultimately there's some connectivity based service that's supporting some application somewhere that's driving, driving that need. Um, do we still need to, you know, open up the ticket and ask, uh, ask myself to go understand all of those interfaces to interrogate it or, or can we start, or can we start turning it over um, in a self-serve manner um, with those guardrails in place, because ultimately mm. we're talking about how do I put the guardrails in place? How do I how do I have confidence within my team and the infrastructure that we can start to allow others to take advantage and get true business value out of all the infrastructure we've put in place? Chris, let's let's frame this for an engineer. We, we've been talking a bit abstractly about the the tooling and what it accomplishes for us. Walk me through the process of using the Itential platform to validate that a change is going to result in a compliant state. What did I build ahead of time? Am I looking at an interface? Um, am I clicking on something or using a script to make something happen? Is the device interrogated? Walk me through it. Sure. So if you do have that that uh, reference uh, perfect switch in the lab, we can, we can take the snapshot of that so you can start to edit it. You have uh, basically uh, a UI, um, so it's not um, on the command line, but it's a UI with a with a with an editor um, that understands, you know, regular expression matching. It un understands the variableization of things. You can put negative tests in there, so for things you don't want. So it, it would be very common to how a network engineer is used to editing a config. It would look it would look similar to that. If you start to work with modern equipment, you're going to have uh, an editor that's built for that JSON schema. Uh, type of mindset we had before. So if you go if you go query AWS, you're going to get the, the JSON payload back. So you have you have that JSON editor where you can do similar things. You can regular express, uh, build regular expressions, etc. When you say modern, you just mean I can make an API call. It's not you're hacking through a CLI and then doing parsing to make the magic happen. Correct. So yeah. so you base you basically have have you're able to build that golden config for either of those, and you can also infer it, like I said, from 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 groups of devices. Um, so, so after you define that, maybe you've just implemented a new best practice, and you want to find out how it exists within your network. So you can you can you can go the traditional route and run a compliance report, and it's going to pull up the devices um, that that don't have the configuration or do have the configuration you did not you did not want there. So that's kind of the design aspect of building um, right. that what we would call golden configuration. 
Um, from that, then you have an auto-generated API call where all you have to do is give us the text, the change you want to make to that device and the device name. And we will determine whether that change is going to bring that device, quote unquote, out of compliance. So the big thing here is, you know, we've all used tooling um, to build some golden configs in the past. We've all, we've all built templates and such. The question is, how do I now expose that out to the rest of my team? So if I have somebody on my team down the hallway who, who's written an Ansible playbook that's going to go affect the device in the network. Instead of that person having to re-implement all those best practices with that playbook, they can basically integrate with our API called, say, I'm going to put this five lines, this 10 lines on this, this config. You can almost think like we're going to auto-generate that in the background and then provide them the feedback of this exact part of your config is actually should not be allowed in the network. So we can kind of get in front of this. So you're actually saying there that even if somebody is going to make a mistake, there's kind of a thing where you say this is this config doesn't match the permitted template. And so you'll not reject it, but you'll flag to people that this is not a good idea or similar. Exactly. And and, and the important part here is obviously, uh, you know, representing iTential, we have an automation platform we've spoken about before, before on the show that will automatically make sure that I'm not, I'm going to prevent myself from invalidating my best practices before I put something in the network. Okay, we, right. But we thought it was equally important to expose that as an API to anybody within the organization. Mm. Um, you know, we, we constantly talk about, you know, the, the right tool for the right job and somebody be, might be writing a Python script, somebody might be using Ansible, somebody might use Terraform, et cetera, within the organization, rather than having to re-implement that a whole bunch of times, if, if the engineering team is defining these best practices, then it can be integrated with you know your ServiceNows or ChatOps pl platform or any of these other toolings to make sure that that best practice can allow us to prevent things from going into the network. The whole idea of breaking the network, identifying the break, then fixing it, that cycle, we really think we can shift left and, and remove the need to ever, quote unquote, break the network before I have to fix it. Let's prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, yeah. which is, yeah. which, which, I'm, what I'm drilling into here is there's ideas around. So when you say, oh, compliance management, NCCM, it's kind of like a bit, bit of a snore fest at, when you start. And then you start poking at it and you start thinking, okay, so if I try to check something into the configuration and it's wrong, I can now flag it or make decisions about it. But I can also use the configuration, the compliance tool to, as, a, as a data store and I can query it about what's actually happening in the devices and in the network. I can say, how many devices of a particular type do I have? And I can write a Python or an Ansible script to query that. Absolutely. Right. So it's not all compliance down to the network. You also want to be thinking about using the compliance manager as a tool in its own right. If you will, if you were writing Python and Ansible to talk to a device, you could now use the NCCM to, do the, to be part of that as part of your scripting tool chain. Yeah, there's something here, Chris. This is replacing something that back in the day I used to have to do manually. There was a change control process where I was one of the box checkers. I had to review the change in great detail, make sure it was going to be okay. And there would be code presented in that change that I had to review line by line to make sure that when everything was done, you know, first of all, they weren't going to bring the network down, but then second of all, that everything was going to be compliant. And the chance of me missing something or someone else on the architecture team I was a part of missing something is we're humans. We're going to miss things from time to time. We're distracted. We get tired. If Itential's doing it for me, then I don't, <laughs> we can already, we can replace the, hey, human, read the code and make sure this is perfect with, we ran this through the Itential process. It has been validated. This code is going to work. And then you don't have to think about that. It's going to be way less error prone than if, 
I'm doing it, staring at lines of uh, Junos or iOS. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's unreasonable to to expect that you would understand the ramifications of any of any certain change. And the the human reaction to this is change control boards, um, less change to the network, locking it down. I mean, that's just the that's the nature of it, right? So the question is, how can we put the controls in place in an automated fashion so that we can open up the network, take advantage of the infrastructure we've put in place, and automate at the speed we desire? Because um, mm. ultimately, this is this is this is compliance with the with the understanding that we're the desired outcome here is that we can automate the the operations of the network. And the question is, what controls and what what capabilities do we need to put in place so that everybody collectively um, is excited about moving forward with automation without concern uh, for having an adverse negative impact on the so application? I, I think we've got some good workflows here with this. This makes sense. We've talked through several of them now, Chris. Are there workflows where maybe this doesn't make sense? You know, put some realistic limits or some scoping on uh, you know, how much magic I can do here. So it, at the end of the day, uh, we talk a lot about declarative state in the cloud. Um, so if, you're, if your life cycle for immutable object in the cloud is to create it and destroy it, um, then, then the concept, then we can just get on with automation. Um, if we go back to that 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 concept before, we said where a device is a device, but if you break up the config, you might have the stuff that never changes. You might have the stuff that changes all the time. You know, we run our software in the cloud. You know, we create and destroy stuff all the time. There's there's no concept necessarily of validation because your desired state is is declared uh, when it's created, and you destroy it when you move on. Um, so we really think this is complementary. Uh, to that, because as I create and destroy stuff in the cloud, there's certain things that I I uh, don't have that same life cycle. Some things need need to move along, so it's really complementary to that. But you know, I would say that that's probably one one case so, where it would make less sense. You're contrasting thing network devices that have a long lifespan versus network devices that do not. Because as you, I mean, I know people that'll stand up and tear down things in the cloud like for fun almost. They needed a dev environment real quick, throw it up, exactly. tear it back down again. We're not putting itential uh, compliance in that role. We're sticking with devices that are long-lived, uh, infrastructure that we're going to be monitoring and, and and caring about over a longer period of time. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, okay. Well, Chris, let's get stuck into this cloud conversation more uh, because a lot of what you just said about cloud, that, that short life cycle is a thing, but it isn't always a thing. There's plenty of stuff that hangs around a long time in, in, uh, in cloud and in my cloud network. There's persistent VPCs and so on. And I, so I need to bring that cloud environment into a compliance state as well, because you know, on-prem, fine, network devices, we've been doing this for a long time in some way or another. It's easy to make that leap. But how do I deal with compliance in that modern network environment that includes cloud of one or more kinds? Exactly. And even to blow it up a little more, um, when, when we say cloud, we typically think about public cloud. But if I think... Um, the, the way we usually talk about it is uh, we, we talk about the concept that uh, my network exploded on the internet in the sense that I don't just have stuff in the data center and I don't just have stuff have, have stuff in the cloud, but maybe I'm using Zscaler for policy. Maybe I'm using Equinix uh, for CrossConnects. Maybe I'm using different SaaS platforms. And if you think about our, you know, our, our job is to really connect users with applications, it's no longer just in my data center or potentially just in, in a single cloud or two. I'm using, you know, authentication in one uh, cloud. I might be using applications in others. So the concept of connecting all that together um, as a network fabric really requires us to look at not just the public cloud infrastructure, 
but also all all those other all those other components which end up tying these things uh, together. Mm. A, a very common one I hear all the time is I have an application for my business. I'm running it in a cloud platform. I need to hit uh, Equinix ECX cross connect, and I need to change change a VLAN um, in my data center, and that altogether represents. Uh, the state of that application. So when we th- think about validation and compliance, we've just traversed, you know, three different boundaries. Mm. Um, but we need to make it very simple for people to define the standards of how those things get configured. So ultimately, that application owner can 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 feel free to to make those changes without repercussion. So d- does I ten- if it, if there's an API and you can get back JSON, does Itential even care what's hanging on the other end of that thing, or do you have to do like integration work to support an AWS environment? That's that's what's so exciting um, is that the the standard for these APIs is Open API specification. Um, slang term is a Swagger spec. Yep. And basically, what that does is it gives you the API and it gives you the schema for each call. So what it allows us to do is that whole the regime of CLI parsers, the regime of of, of understanding what the nuance of the the letters NTP space and then the next word that that disappears because there's an actual grammar definition for all of these APIs. Mm. So, so you get that out of the box. Um, now the, the question is, is how do I apply best practices? Can somebody create any VPC they want? Can they add any security group they want? Can they add any route they want? Of course not. Those are, those are just like you would in your data center. So how do I say, I want to allow somebody to do that, but I definitely don't want them to route traffic ingress here, egress there. I want to make sure we implement these security groups to block traffic from certain areas. Um, you know, we still have to apply those best practices. You know, the, the cloud doesn't come for free. Um, I still have to configure it. Um, and I have all this traditional tooling around my data center fabrics. I have this traditional tooling around my CLI devices. How, how do I take that need for my business and apply it to what is really all the network infrastructure, which is what we described being all over the internet? So you can read the Swagger docs and humans can read the Swagger docs. They're, they're often published and they're very readable. They just give you a description of exactly what to send and what you're going to get back and how to parse that. And if you've done any Python programming, you've probably looked at Swagger along the way. Itential will look at that for me. Is there... I mean, but, but but parsing JSON key value pairs isn't the same as, hey, I know that this precious API does this magical, you know, VPC thing, and then you kind of abstracting that from me. So are you just making it easy for me to do that scoping of what I want, sanitizing that input and building that policy around what I want that API to look like? Or is there, um, you know, more that you build around that? We make it very easy for you to onboard that and apply your business logic or your best practice to it as, as immediately as possible. Yeah. Any of your any of your listeners that have adopted SD WAN or some modern platform, they get code drops all the time. This is the, the these these modern networking stacks are still maturing, so things are changing all the time. So the, the thought that you know you do it and you wait four years later, I mean, the question is how can I consume this technology as quickly as possible? How can I put the guardrails in place so I can take advantage of it from a business standpoint? So from you know, your, I think your question was very specific technology. So you can log it in the platform, you can upload the Swagger specification. The platform understands immediately how to do that. You go to the golden configuration screen, you click the API you're interested in, you pull up the schema and you edit it with your best practices, you save it, and then you can run compliance on that API immediately. So it's 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 a handful of, of seconds and minutes. Um, it's immediate. Um, there's no code for Itential to write. So at AWS reInvent, when there's 
84 new services and you're very interested <laughs> in using one of those 84 services, you can you can take your attention platform, point at the new service that was launched five minutes ago, pull in, pull in an understanding of that and use it immediately. You, you don't have to call our customer success to quote unquote onboard the new API or onboard, onboard the new device type, right? That's 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 how that's how multi-vendor fill-in-the-blank compliance or automation has been done. Um, so we just think on that. We have to take advantage of of how these APIs were written for software developers, and we have to take advantage of it so we can so we can move forward with with how we manage these networks. So, Chris, if I'm dealing with cloud, though, I've got these APIs. We've been having a very network centric discussion, but cloud infrastructure provisioning very often involves more than one group of people. So, security, for example, they're going to want to have some kind of input into the policy, into what I can and can't do when standing up a VPC, let's say, how do I integrate the needs of those folks into itential and, uh, and compliance? So if I take a step back to answer the question, I think most organizations have been pretty comfortable splitting their network engineering from maybe I'll call the DevOps team um, that managed a lot of the cloud infrastructure. Um, and a story I hear quite often is as the DevOps team starts to deal with real networking challenges in the cloud, they start to start to engage uh, with us networking engineers to actually understand how packets are going to make their way uh, kind of around the cloud. Um, and and we actually see these groups. It, at some point, I think a lot of CEOs felt that, that they were comfortable having those as two different worlds. You know, I have an application either in my data center or I have an application in the cloud. And if you if you tend to agree with kind of your networks everywhere now, we really have to bring those teams together. Um, we really need the security teams. We really need the DevOps experts. We really need the network engineers to build the infrastructure that supports our modern applications because that's ultimately uh, why we're doing this. So you know, from from an intentional standpoint, providing RBAC, providing audit and logging, providing self serve, that's all kind of core concepts. Um, to the platform. Um, that's the stuff that as an individual, if you're building your own automation frameworks, that's probably the less fun stuff. But but allowing allowing the right team to use the right job and to integrate it within within the platform is, is really what we work on. So organizations that are really bringing those teams together, um, they start to, to elicit those challenges. Those are, those, are, those are exciting times just because they're being very aggressive um, in how they're going to support the business. Oh, and it blows up the technology silo thing, which I think has been a dead idea for a long time now because, hey, we're not building networks. We're building application delivery systems, and it's more than just a network. There's a whole bunch of teams that are involved in making all that happen. So the more we get our heads around working together and speaking each other's language and uh, coordinating on things, the more efficient the organization is. And so I triggered, Chris, that's another thing for me to get excited <laughs> about. <laughs> well, Chris, help us bring this conversation together with some examples. I know you've got product out there. You, you've got some customer stories you can share with us. So bring some of these big ideas together with some of that. Sure. So I'll start with maybe a more traditional example um, that most people can relate with. So a large transportation company was having outages at their branches, which represented their ability to, to transport things. So uh, they, they, they had people on CLI, um, they had outages. And, and when you investigate these, these aren't people that didn't know what they were doing. Um, this was a combination of factors, which, which led, which led to outages. And it was because they were doing the make a change in the network in the middle of the night change management window, doesn't realize the combination of events and factors that, that lead to outages. So really by defining those best practices and standards, moving to a preventative way of operating, they had no outages last year. And it was, it was meaningful, um, obviously, from, from a dollar perspective. So that, that is the most like common 
And, 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 and the other thing is they didn't have to throw away all their tools. Um, there, there were people within the organization that are very comfortable um, in a variety of tool sets, and they were able to use, like Greg was alluding to, the, they were able to query the system to find out, if I do this, you know, what's the outcome? I, I, am I going to, to trip a wire here? Mm. Um, so so that's, that's really kind of the most common one. Chris, that, that, just to follow up on that story, that works both ways, too. You said it, it prevented people from doing a certain combination of things that would clobber the network. Uh, unexpectedly, because they just didn't think about how it would all happen. Well, the flip side of that is you can't get change controls done because, well, someone over here is making this other change and we're scared that what you're doing is related. It's like it's not related. And so you end up having your change control put on hold for weeks or months just because someone else is doing something. You can have now this would facilitate getting things done in a more timely fashion as well. So not only preventing uh, unintended consequences, but also just moving things ahead when uh, different changes maybe aren't going to impact one another. Exactly. And then as I move into kind of, I get more excited about uh, these types of use cases in the sense that something very simple like DNS um, requests uh, took three days. Um, Not because it took three days to make the change. We all know it's about a five minute change, but uh, because of your change management uh, process, because of checks and balances, it took three days of duration uh, to get those put in place. And what we did is we put the restrictions in place, which is it's a very simple service compared to, you know, most of the examples we were talking about today. And what we allowed was we allowed, uh, you know, simple record updates and creates uh, to be made by the actual application developers. So what would happen is the application developers, because it was quote unquote, not easy to make a DNS update, they would wait until the application was done to make a change because it was, they didn't want to do it and then have to call and explain why they had to change it. So they'd wait to the very end where they were really sure they wanted to make the change to the network. And then they had that three-day duration at the end. And by putting the guardrails in place and providing a self-serve API, we actually saw the usage of the DNS service go up by 300%. And you're like, well, why is that? It's because the application developers put it in their pipeline that anytime they made a change throughout their development process, um, as they moved to production, it would make that change automatically. So gone was the three days, gone was the service now ticket that I had to work. And now the application owners were enabled to do that themselves. Um, so it's it's the story of those guardrails being in place for a very, very simple service. The simplest service maybe I can think of um, really results in people taking more advantage of the network. Um, and the, the way we talk about this is the network is probably um, the most underutilized asset we have in the business because of all the constraints we put around it. So if we measure the use of the network as related to the value of the business, we are we are basically you know strangling the ability uh, for the business to take advantage of it. And we think we need to kind of get on uh, with the comfort of, of making those changes. Well, everybody's scared of that blast radius, but uh, but the network is the thing that every application is delivered on and should be looked at as as an asset, just like you said. Boy, I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's an interesting point you make, Chris. So I I know you had another story to tell with this uh, particular the application owner idea. So one DNS request, making it safe for them, but then also firewall requests. Yeah. When it comes to firewalls, um, you know, the, the turnaround here was uh, five days, but the, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not a traditional firewall expert, but from working with customers, the interesting thing is uh, I've heard this two or three times now um, is that 90% of the requests are either already allowed in the network. Like it's literally already allowed. If you just checked, it was there or it will never be allowed. You know, we made a decision. We're never going to do that in the network. You can't get from, from A to B. Um, oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, between policy and then looking through actual firewall policy to see what's in there or not, most of the, the firewall policies have grown 
to be obscene, just thousands upon thousands of rules that are very difficult to parse. And once you finally do, yeah, you'll find, yeah, this is already done. This should be, anyway, yes, I'm just, I'm agreeing with you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the ability to deflect 90% of the work, um, not require the five days of wait time and take the burden off our team is is substantial. And we're not, you know, we're just talking about building an understanding of what the state is and providing yes, no answers to application owners. Cause we know we don't want to publish these out for everybody to understand the nuances of the traffic we're allowing and not allowing, but just uh, just simply making it available through an API call makes massive improvements to the end user. Well, what's interesting about these examples is you've begun to put uh, that that real world, these are the kind of things that you can do. These are the kind of solutions that you can build once you've got that tooling in place. It's not as simple as, this is not a configuration management tool as such. There's That's a use case. We've discussed it. We're, we're doing compliance, but then- Practically speaking, when you get into using uh, iTential as with all of the knowledge that it now has about your network and the questions that you can ask and get answers back that save time and improve business workflow, that's where the value comes in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Chris, thank you for joining us on Packet Pushes Heavy Networking today. And you guys are all over the internet. So give, give us a clue here how we can follow iTential and find out more information. Yeah, I'll make it simple. Um, Itential.com slash packet pushers. Um, on that page, you can get a demo of the platform. Obviously, you can speak uh, with an expert. All of our documentation's out there. But the the best thing to do is we do have a, a super easy SaaS trial to sign up for. Um, get your hands on it. Add one of those APIs we were talking about. See how easy it is to use. So SaaS trial, as in I don't have to download the thing and build a server. I can just, I can trial it like now. One of those things where it's going to be really fast, eh? It's there waiting for you. For sure. All right. All right. I like it. I like it. I like it. Itential.com slash packet pushers if you are interested in that. And our thanks to Itential for sponsoring today's show. Our sponsors enable us to bring you professional career development content week after week because without our sponsors, we would we just would not have lasted all this time, I can tell you. If you do ring up Itential, you hit that landing page, Itential.com slash packet pushers, and Tell them that you heard uh, about their network automation platform on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. We would appreciate that. You can find this and many more of our fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That is all at PacketPushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and chat with us at PacketPushers.net slash Slack. That's right. We have a free Slack group. Just review the very short set of rules and then join PacketPushers.net slash Slack and we'll see you there. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.